Welcome to Peer Into Recovery, a podcast with the focus on the profession of peer support. For more information about how to subscribe, please visit our website at www.vprsn.org. Hey, everybody, this is Chris Newcomb. I'm your host for another edition of Peer Into Recovery Podcast, a podcast that is focused on the profession of peer support. Today, I have a great guest. His name is Tom Jackson. Tom comes to us from Stanton, Virginia, in the Shenandoah Valley. Tom, how are you doing today? I'm doing okay for a cold, rainy, not quite winter, not quite spring Monday. It was 80 degrees the other day, and then there was snow. I'm here in Richmond, and they say, just give it five minutes. It's Richmond. The weather will change. Mm -hmm. So let me introduce you to our audience. You are a registered peer recovery specialist, and you're working there in the daytime at Western State Hospital there in Stanton and doing quite a few things there, working with groups and individuals, as well as working in the diversion program for co-occurring disorder. You also have several certifications. You are a certified older adult peer recovery specialist. You're an ethics instructor as well as a RAP instructor, and you completed the Certified Personal Medicine Coach program along with myself, which was a lot of fun, and it's a great modality. If you haven't done that, check it out. And you're also working at night with the VRAP, or Virginia Recovery Advocacy Project, and that is spelled V as in Victor, R-A-P as in Paul, so V-R-A-P, Virginia Recovery Advocacy Project. I'll let the listeners know Tom and I had such a great time talking that we probably should just get coffee because we could have done two or three episodes. But since we can only do one, we're going to hone in on uh, his journey into recovery, what he's doing now uh, in the profession, but particularly honing in on the advocacy piece of what happened in January and February in the state legislature, because that has a direct effect to everyone who's already working as peer recovery specialist and those who will begin to work in the field in the years to come. So this episode is packed full of information. Grab a piece of paper, pen, tablet, uh, your phone, uh, computer, gather your friends and family, put it on CNN because this is really great information. So without further ado, Tom, action, Jackson, the clock is ticking, your story, let's go, boom, hit it. Okay, so my standard introduction is, hey everybody, my name is Tom Jackson. I use he, him pronouns, I'm a person in long-term recovery, which for me means I haven't used illicit substances since May 13th, 1991, and my last serious mental health crisis was in August of 2009. Um, I was born in New York City. When I was nine, we moved to Eastern Connecticut. I was really fortunate. We grew up, I grew up on the beach um, and then moved to San Francisco when I was 22 uh, to sort of follow the Grateful Dead, uh, learn how to cook uh, California cuisine and come out. And so I did everything <laughs> all within like the first two or three weeks, you know, yeah, get it all out of the way. Uh, and I lived there for 15 years. Then I moved to Hawaii for four years and I moved to Charlottesville in 97, had a series of mental health crises, uh, was homeless for a while. Uh, and then in 2002, got hired by somebody who is now a very good friend of mine. Uh, as a recovery coach and house manager at uh, Region 10 Community Service Board, uh, uh, dual, uh, dual recovery centers, uh, uh, housing. And I went from, you know, literally like on a Tuesday or Wednesday, you know, at Salvation Army with no anything 
to a roof over my head, uh, 10 or 12 hours a week of pay and cable and, uh, you know, all that kind of stuff. And then just kind of, uh, you know, got promoted, got promoted, got promoted, uh, retired from Region 10 five years ago uh, as one of the program managers of the Wellness Recovery Center and then kind of hopped around from job to job, uh, did some work at a, uh, uh, at a group home, did some work with a rural uh, federally qualified health center in uh, south of Charlottesville, and then uh, did some peer work for On Our Own in Charlottesville, the peer recovery center there. And without much warning, because somebody uh, decided to go back to school, uh, started on a contract at Western State uh, three years ago in January. Um, so I kind of got to see what the hospital was like just before COVID, and then everything shut down. And we've been, you know, kind of up and down and up and down, trying to get back to what life was like in January and February three years ago, but we're still not all the way back. Um, and then I got hired part-time by the hospital uh, that summer, full-time in November of 2020. And so I've been full-time on staff there ever since. Um, in the summer of 2020, right? Yeah. In the summer of 2020, um, I read a book called American Fix by uh, a guy by the name of Ryan Hampton, who um, was one of the two co-founders of the Recovery Advocacy Project and sort of our related annual conference, Mobilize Recovery. Uh, and in American Fix, toward the end of it, he basically said, uh, what we need to solve in particular, uh, the overdose addiction uh, suicide and uh, lack of recovery crisis was something akin to what I had done, I don't know, what was it, 15 years earlier, give or take, with um, the HIV AIDS movement, and in particular, what ACT UP did, uh, where you know their motto was silence equals death, and that the only way we were going to really solve the whole uh, addiction crisis was that everybody who had anything to do with it talked to everybody they knew about what was going on with them, whether they were, you know, a family member who had a loss, an ally, or a person in long-term person in recovery, short-term, long-term, sustained or not, um, or somebody, you know, and I do a lot of harm reduction work, or somebody who is still actively using using substances. And then this past year, we did something really interesting, which was a coast-to-coast in both directions bus tour um, where actually the bus came to Richmond, which is uh, uh, where I did one event. Uh, and then I kind of followed it up to Philadelphia and New Jersey. And then uh, we ended up in New York. And several of us had the privilege of attending the Clinton Global Initiative, uh, which was the Clinton Foundation's first convening of CGI since 2016. Uh, when I first got sober uh, almost 32 years ago, I was just terrified of public speaking. And I decided I was going to use 12-step meetings uh, as a way to get over it. And I forced myself to share 
just about every 12-step meeting I went to for a couple of years. And wow. so, uh, you know, in this room full of lots of dignitaries and, and so on, uh, you know, there was a question and answer period, raised my hand, they handed me a microphone. And she had put up some slides that talk about talked about sort of a four-point recovery program that they are implementing, and it all looked wonderful. And I said, you know, this is great. It's really, you know, you're talking in two and three dimensions here. The thing you're missing is that fourth dimension, which is time, and that, you know, the time between somebody deciding, hey, I'm ready to do something, I'm ready to start my recovery, and the time that willingness fades, you know, that window of opportunity can literally be, I mean, sometimes it literally can be five or 10 minutes, you know, and one of the things that we are actively advocating for is same-day service, that that you walk in and you will get services that day, not what Virginia currently does, which is an assessment when, and services within 10 calendar days. Uh, and that's one, that's my long-term dream. They will walk in and they will meet a peer specialist right away who will guide them through the process, um, and be available, um, if not 24 seven, at least more than Monday to Friday, eight to five, uh, to help guide them through their first few weeks of, uh, of early recovery. Uh, maybe by 2025, 2026 might be able to uh to do some of that but that's my dream that's my that's my advocacy dream is to is to make the csbs truly deliver same-day services which are heavily heavily peer uh peer-based so that's a wonderful dream i know that you are committed to making that happen and i'm sure that it will and this is the perfect segue to talk about advocacy and what just happened in the state legislature in january and february so why don't you tell us about uh vrap uh, virginia recovery action project in relation to uh, what just happened during this advocacy period in the legislature okay uh legislative session ended on friday um all things being equal with uh, a split legislature, Democrats having a two-seat majority in the Senate and Republicans having, excuse me, I think a four-seat majority in the House and a Republican governor who clearly has presidential ambitions. Um, all things being equal, it wasn't bad. Um, the only, before I get to the good news, the only not-so-good news was a bill passed uh Fentanyl is now a weapon of terrorism in Virginia. What? Get out of here. Weaponization is usually a term you use like between two countries that are about to go at it. You got to unpack this for us. It was a stealth bill. Uh, the title was Weapons of Terror. Uh, the title of the bill did not mention fentanyl. The hearing was at something like eight at night. Nobody knew about it. No, no advocacy organization showed up to testify. Uh, and it passed overwhelmingly in in both houses. Um, uh, there is a senator from Northern Virginia, I believe, named Scott Suravel, who's a big recovery ally, who did stand up in the Senate committee hearing and got the words give and sell taken out of the bill. So you couldn't be charged as a terrorist if you gave somebody something that was laced with fentanyl. 
Uh, you could still be charged under other felony laws, but not this one. You know, the the discrimination is starting to rise up again. Uh, even, you know, the governor's work on, uh, you know, when he started uh, his mental health um, um, program, what, about a month ago? You know, um, crime and violence are mentioned every time he mentions the word mental health, even though we know there is almost no link between the two, that people with serious mental health conditions are, you know, I think literally 10 or 12 times more likely to be the victim of a crime than the perpetrator of one. Um, and even, interestingly enough, I just saw this the other day, uh, that more and more of even even the shootings that we see all the time uh by and large these are not people who have uh a diagnosable mental health condition so you know to pair those two together and uh just you know continue the the discrimination uh it's a guy by the name of bill white who is um really sort of the historian of the uh, recovery advocacy movement um, a few months ago in a in a in a talk said he's even stopping using the word stigma and he's just calling it discrimination. Let's talk about what it is. Stigma stigma is a feeling. Stigma is a thought. Uh, discrimination is the behavior. I mean, I can stigmatize people all I want, but that's between my that's between my ears. Those are my my thoughts and my feelings. The behavior is the discrimination. I think two things really. Number one is you know, instead of going after, instead of reducing the supply, let's reduce the demand. You know, that's the first thing. Let's let's make let's make recovery the epidemic, uh, as opposed to making drugs the epidemic. Because you know, there are always going to be cartels. You know, there's been you know there were bootleggers when my parents were little kids, uh, or not not so little teenagers. Um, you know, there were bootleggers then, um, and, you know, there's always people who are going to sell, who are going to make money selling substances to people, uh, because there's always going to be a demand. So you can make recovery the epidemic and reduce the demand, uh, you know, provide treatment, provide treatment on demand. And then, of course, the two biggest things um, underlying long-term recovery are safe housing uh, and a job. And, you know, if we felt the more we felonize, uh, you know, small sales and so on, the more people have a felony record, they're never going to get a decent job. Although that's starting to change a little bit. Um, sure. And there is, you know, perilously nowhere near enough recovery housing. I mean, Richmond's, Richmond is nationally known for the quality and quantity of the recovery housing it has. Uh, but it's really, a, it's really an exception. So we have this bill that got snuck in at the last hour and uh, weaponization of fentanyl, which is just unbelievable. So what else happened? Give us some good news. Okay. So the single biggest news from the peer perspective is that the barrier crime bill passed both houses and is on its way to the governor. And what that means is that peers who have a barrier crime, and Virginia has the longest list of barrier crimes by at least 100 of any state. So last year, we tried, you know, going through making a list of 
uh, and getting, you know, just chopping that list way down. And that did not pass. So this year, what uh, a bunch of advocates put together uh, was a bill that makes those crimes reviewable on an individual basis based on how they related to an individual's uh, pre-recovering life and how their recovery uh, basically counterbalanced or counteracted whatever the charge was. Uh, you know, what have they done? In, what, you know, what, what's the person done in recovery um, to, you know, whether it's to make amends or not do it again or whatever, but, but for them to be reviewed on an individual basis. And there is also a line item in the budget that we sent out a, an action on uh, to actually fund two positions to do the, to do the checks um, because, you know, it's not going to do much good if, uh, if the, if DBHDS department of behavioral health doesn't have anybody there to actually do the checks, it's on the way. It should be on the way to the governor. Um, other things that passed or, um, and I can't, some of them, it's hard to tell just sort of looking through it. Um, there is the beginning of a program on jail-based substance treatment uh, and transition services. Uh, there, it's the the on the uh, beginning of it was delayed a year as the House and Senate got in a spat about it. Um, but it looks as though it might be it might be moderately well funded. Um, you know, the idea, of course, being that there is a huge danger and lots of people who overdose and die coming out of jails and prisons because by and large they are substance naive they're you know and have been for some period of time although of course you know whatever what what all my clients tell me is that you know jails are a great place to buy drugs one of the bills that has passed both houses uh starts virginia on the road to providing jail and prison-based uh, substance use services uh, and also transition services to the community for people who are being released from jails and prisons. Uh, the overdose rate of people who resume use after incarceration is off the charts. Uh, their bodies are drug naive and they go back and they do the same quantity of something that they did months or years before and with an increasingly poisoned supply on top of it um, the overdose and death rate is is very high so there's some recognition that that needs to get fixed um and that uh, i don't know how much uh, this is a response to the fact that there are inmates in some states i don't think in virginia yet um who are suing jails and prisons under the Americans with Disabilities Act and are winning uh, to be provided substance treatment in jails and prisons. Uh, and there's been some, some initial success. And I wonder how much of this is an attempt to head some of that off. Um, what else? Oh, one big thing. Um, uh, let's see. The Substance Abuse Services Council uh, is now going to be the Virginia Addiction Recovery Council uh, and adding a couple of members. Um, let's see, what else? Oh, um, um, 
jail and prison employees are now authorized to administer Narcan, which is also something uh, something pretty important. Um, there is um, some increased funding for mental health and rehabilitative services for military service members transitioning to uh, civilian life. Um, one other thing that uh, personally and also relates to uh, the plan the governor came out with, uh, a bill passed to increase the accountability of community services boards, um, many of whose reporting uh, is always non-existent. Um, and uh, there was a presentation that that, uh, that, um, that DBHDS got maybe six weeks or so ago, and the and the var the variation from uh, from non-existent to very good is just all over the place. Um, health insurance is now required to provide coverage for mobile crisis response services and for uh, residential uh, crisis stabilization. Two last things. There is some increased tracking of um, naloxone distribution and overdose uh, reversal, although not as much as we were hoping. Um, and then the last thing we were hoping originally to get a person with life experience appointed to the Behavioral Health Commission. And what we were told is that the Behavioral Health Commission is exclusively composed of legislators and they are not gonna let anybody else on. So um, uh, the proposal was to form a committee of people with life experience um, to be to advise the Behavioral Health Commission. Uh, and while the bill that passed doesn't explicitly say form a committee, it does charge the commission with actively soliciting and receiving responses from people who can who uh, who have received services. Um, uh, received uh, mental health or behavioral health services uh, in Virginia. So hopefully that will lead to uh, to an advisory committee of some kind. So that's all the stuff that passed, uh, which is not bad. Now we'll be, you know, well, I've started, I started writing it uh, or outlining it uh, yesterday. You know, uh, VRAP will be sending out actions to our 860 person uh, mailing list, go to Virginia Recovery Advocacy Project on Facebook and sign our platform. Uh, and all it's going to ask for is your name, email, and zip code during a legislative session, especially when we would find out, you know, 36 hours ahead of time that something was going to be heard, um, trying to encourage people to, um, to take action. We've got a great tool called Action Network, which is a very good database for taking actions. Um, you know, it's pretty simple to put together an email that links to an action page where you can automatically send stuff to your representatives, state and federal. It, by zip code, it'll figure out, you know, who your, who your representatives are. Uh, we can do custom lists to uh, committees and subcommittees and and joint committees and so on. 
um, for, you know, particular bills and so on and stuff like that. We've had things where we've sent out a couple of thousand, a couple of thousand messages to, uh, to delegates and senators. Um, we had one that we did for uh, adding cultural competency to the Virginia peer certification training, uh, because as of the current manual, which is finally under revision, I got the draft of it um, a couple of days ago, and I have I have till uh, till Wednesday to provide comments. So I'm. Um, but uh, cultural competency in the in the manual was three paragraphs. Um, and we did a listening session on peer services and um, uh, an African-American, uh, a man who identified as African-American and queer, uh, said that when he did his peer training, he just didn't relate to anything. It was, you know, there was no, he didn't feel safe in the class. He didn't feel heard. Uh, he didn't feel comfortable. And so we decided to do an action. We sent 120 or 130 letters to the Office of Recovery Services, and which led to the formation of um, a, uh, a series of, um, of panels at VCU, uh, which in turn led to you know, a pending revision of uh, of the manual. It also led to um, uh, one day train the trainer program for on LGBTQIA plus issues. Uh, there'll be another one on BIPOC, Black Indigenous People of Color issues, um, and so on sometime in the in the in the future. Uh, so that was an action that was that was our most successful action to date. So, you know, to wrap it all up, recovery is about not just living, it's about thriving, not just surviving. And so, you know, to bow tie it all together, we've been talking about things with the legislature and moving this whole uh, profession forward to help people who really need it. I want to summarize what you have shared with us, uh, that there are quite a few things that were happening in the legislature. Number one, the barrier crimes are now going from a sort of a mass categorization to more individualized case-by-case basis. Uh, number two, jail-based substance support and treatment has now been approved. And uh, number three, the Substance Abuse Council has now been renamed to the Virginia Addiction Recovery Council. And then number four, jail and prison employees now are able to administer Narcan, which is fantastic. Number five, veteran uh, increased services um, in transition to civilian life has been put into motion and more money has been uh, allocated for those services. Uh, number six, increased accountability of CSB reporting, which has uh, heretofore been a little bit spotty, so they're improving that. And then number seven, health insurance is required to cover mobile response services and crisis stabilization services. And then uh, number eight is an increased tracking of naloxone distribution and overdose reversal, which is, which is a really good thing. We at least reduced some of the harm of the, of the one bill that, you know, that calls fentanyl a weapon of terrorism, getting at least the part of giving it to someone or an individual sale, getting that removed from, uh, from the bill. So, uh, you know, if you sit down with a friend and you split something and it has fentanyl in it, 
um, you're not going to be charged with terrorism. Uh, you can still be, you know, if the person overdoses, you can still be charged with multiple felonies for, you know, for giving the drug already. Uh, but this just, you know, added to it and uh, in, a, in a just totally, you know, headline burning, ridiculous way. I do want to say again and mention the Action Network database if people want to get involved with the Virginia Recovery Advocacy Project. They can find that on Facebook. Oddly enough, under, you guessed it, Virginia Recovery Advocacy Project, where you can sign up for the newsletter and also receive uh, advocacy alerts to take action. You can also find the National Recovery Advocacy Project at recoveryvoices.com. That's just uh, great stuff. Tom, thanks so much for sharing all the information that you've given on this podcast of what was going on at the state legislature earlier this year, the great things that are being put into motion and all the work that the Virginia Recovery Advocacy Project is doing. Thank you for the work you're doing as a registered peer recovery specialist there at the uh, Western State Hospital in Stanton and working as a peer in a hospital setting and kind of bridging the gap between clinical and peer services, which when that happens, the best of both worlds. And also we were joking earlier, I'll just reiterate what you were telling me that you were like, hey, I'm speaking as an individual, not as a official employee of the Commonwealth of Virginia, lest anyone think I'm speaking definitively from on high. But we know that uh, your reporting is accurate, and thank you for that. However, if anyone does have a problem with anything Tom said, his email is... I'm just kidding. Hey, thanks, Tom. Hey, thanks, Chris. I'd like to thank our listeners for listening to the Peer Into Recovery podcast, which is brought to you by the Virginia Peer Recovery Specialist Network and Mental Health America, Virginia. And if you like our show and would like to subscribe to the podcast, please visit our website at www.vprsn.org. And please leave us a brief review on iTunes. In the meantime, please take care of yourselves, everyone. We'll see you soon.